Welcome to episode 108 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent writing crime fiction inspired by true crime FBI cases. Today, we get to speak to Ralph DeFonso, who served in the FBI for 30 years. He was initially assigned to the Salt Lake City Division and later to the Los Angeles Division, where he worked on the major case Violent Crime Squad and handled high-profile cases such as kidnappings, bank robberies, celebrity stalkings, fugitive investigations, and extortions. In this episode, Ralph DeFonso reviews his eight-year fugitive case to apprehend John Jack Riccardi, wanted for the double murder of Connie Navarro and her friend Susan Jari. Connie Navarro was the mother of rock guitarist and singer-songwriter Dave Navarro, who produced Morning Sun, a documentary about the tragic event. Ralph DeFonso appears in the film. As an FBI certified police instructor and a former member of the FBI SWAT team, crisis negotiator, and crisis management coordinator, Ralph, who is now retired, provides training to law enforcement and private sectors throughout the United States. He works as a private investigator and a consultant for the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children's Team Adam and Project Alert. He also conducts security audits and assessments in schools and businesses. Ralph has appeared in various TV and radio programs and has been interviewed in national newspapers and publications, offering his expertise and experience regarding ongoing high-profile criminal cases. This was a fantastic interview, especially since I conducted it after watching Dave Navarro's documentary, Morning Sun, and I recommend that you watch it also, if you're interested in learning more about the background involving this double murder. Before we get to the interview, I do want to tell you about some exciting things that have happened over the last few days. First of all, on Sunday, we did have that DC podcast meetup. It was well attended and a successful event. I'd like to give a shout out to Stacy, Sam, Wendy, Raina, Ian, Mike and Brenda, Molly, Josh and Laura, Becky, Jocelyn, Rebecca, Cecily, Jacqueline, and Sarah, and all the other attendees that I didn't have a chance to write down their names. And I also want to give a shout out to Deanna, Esther, and Haley. If you want to see how much fun we had at that DC podcast meetup, just go to my Facebook author page, Jerry Williams Author, to view photos and videos from the event. The second exciting thing that happened to me this week is that I had the opportunity to meet new FBI director Chris Ray. He was in Philadelphia addressing current employees of the Philadelphia Division, and I, along with other retired agents, were invited to attend. I am putting together a summary of the reassuring message that he gave during his presentation, and I will include that in my April Reader Team email. I can tell you that I believe that the FBI is in good hands and that everything is going to be just fine under the leadership of Director Ray. 
If you're interested in reading my write-up and you're not a member of my reader team, well, then I invite you to join. All you need to do is go to my website, jerrywilliams.com and sign up when you see the pop-up. Or you can sign up for my reader team when you're at Jerry Williams Author, my Facebook page, checking out those DC podcast meetup photos and videos. I want to thank you for listening. As you know, I don't do Patreon and I don't do ads. If you'd like to support me, you can support me by checking out my FBI crime thriller, Pay to Play, available at Amazon.com as an ebook, trade paperback, and audiobook. So thank you. Now here's the show. I am excited to introduce my guest, Ralph DeFonzo. Hi, Ralph. Good morning, Jerry. How are you today? I'm great. Now, I know that people in the FBI, retired and current, may not recognize you as Ralph because you went by several different nicknames when you were in the Bureau. Well, you know, you can call me Ralph, but depending on what office and what time of year it was, you know, some people remember me way back as Butch and out in L.A. They called me DeFonz. I guess he was popular back there with the last name DeFonzo. So, uh... But um, I guess I have to answer to Ralph since it's a bureau. <laughs> since it's a bureau matter, how's that? Okay, then I'm calling you Ralph because that is your official bureau name, as we say in the FBI. Yeah. So, Ralph, I have to let you know that I just finished watching Morning Sun, which is the documentary that Dave Navarro, the guitarist and singer-songwriter, produced about the murder of his mother. It is a heart-wrenching, heartbreaking film. And I want to warn you that as a mother, as a parent, I felt so deeply for his story about what happened. And so as we talk about this case from the investigative side, you know, I'm going to have to try my best to, to hold it together. Well, I'll tell you, Jerry, the comment, follow up on your comment about a parent and a mother, uh, you know, with children. I think when we were in the Bureau, we kind of, not that we forgot about that part, we were like FBI agents first. And you go out and you work these cases, and you really kept the emotions out of it, uh, it seems like. I mean, I try to go back in time, uh, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. But I think as we get older, our thoughts have changed. I think, like you mentioned, as a mother, I've been out recently doing work and uh, looking at some cases and the things that wouldn't have bothered me 20, 30 years ago, when I look at the pictures of these kids now and certain things and what's going on and uh, what happens to these children, it does. It does put you in a different mindset and it is it is emotional. So I do understand what you're saying and uh, and I think anyone with children or grandchildren respect that so very much. Well, with that in mind, why don't you start from the very beginning and tell us about this tragic incident of domestic violence? Well, this case involved um, an, an interesting. The subject's name in the case was John Alexander Riccardi, and um, John Riccardi was a New Yorker. And you can forgive me because I use some slang. He was a Joe uh, bag of donuts, as we used to call him back in the Bureau. He's a good old uh, boy, uh, good Italian boy. He came out to L.A. and he started, uh, you know, doing his thing out there, uh, meeting people, dealing with people, 
And what he did was he met a lady named Connie Navarro. Connie and John McCarty had a relationship, and that relationship was kind of uh, on and off rocky. And uh, and a lot of this information, um, and I'll back up a little bit, LAPD was an LAPD investigation. And I worked a lot with the Los Angeles Police Department. Matter of fact, I still to this day have relatives who are retired from LAPD. So I worked a lot with LAPD when I've worked in LA. And I got a lot of their cases. Uh, they helped us on a lot of our fugitive work. And so I, I got this case from them. And with the case, they're kind of interesting. A lot of the guys, the Texas, shared with me just a lot of facts, and not not only just a lot of facts, facts and crime scene photographs. So I was able to do a, a you know look at a lot of aspects of this case. But but back to Connie, I mean, she had this relationship, uh, and I think she kind of wanted to cool it a little bit with uh, Riccardi. And and Riccardi was one of these guys. He was a muscle man, and he lifted weights, and he, you know he hung out a lot. He was a fast mover, kind of an interesting guy though. He never drank, didn't do drugs. Uh, but he hung out in those those areas of West L.A., the, the high end areas of West L.A. And as time went on, uh, I think as she tried to cool it with him completely, he kind of flipped out. And what he did was he made several calls to her place. He kind of stalked her a little bit. And then on March 4th of 1983, I think he did something very uncharacteristic when you look at his back as I'm fast-forwarding his rap sheet in his criminal record, if you will. He had no acts of violence on his criminal record. But what he did that day and that night was he broke into her apartment out in West L.A. and he waited for her to come home. And at that time, she was with her girlfriend, Susan Jewelry. And her and Susan came into the house and they confronted him and he pulled out a, a firearm and shot and killed both of them. And as the case goes on, it's always good to know your cases. Um, and in this case, and I'll explain to you later on as as we go through this case, when he shot Connie, she was found underneath, like when you open up your a closet in the hallway where you put your towels or maybe your ironing board or your ironing your iron or your your you know your spray iron spray spray stuff for your clothing and stuff like that. She was found like right right there in that part of the closet, like uh, as the closet door opened. Susan was found in a bedroom, and she was shot, and she had some defense rooms, like, you know, like with someone to put their hands up. LAPD started working on the case. This is back in March. They did a lot of work on the case. Um, and as I looked at it, and it's interesting, I, I, I kind of talk a lot about this case. I talk about it in a crime scene perspective. I, I just did a few years ago at an IEI convention, the International Association Identification Convention, up in Dover, Delaware, and I was showing him the crime scene photographs. And he left his fingerprints when he leaned into the uh, over the cabinets and different places like that. They recovered some fingerprints. They did some investigation. Uh, they identified him. They were able to obtain enough information from uh, physical evidence and uh, witness information, and they were able to obtain a warrant. What's kind of interesting, one of those individuals that was kind of involved in this case and, and is a young man named David Navarro. Now, David was Connie's son. Now, to back in 1983, I mean, David Navarro's name is he's just another 15-year-old boy to me. But as time goes on, as most of the kids know and maybe adults know, David is was a league guitarist in uh, like the Red Hot Chili Peppers and a few other of these groups. 
He was married to Carmen Electra. He was 15 years old when his mom died. And at one time, I remember through the investigation, he, he mentioned to the police that he was even handcuffed to a toilet seat by Riccardi. And I think David believed, as we got the ch- and I got a chance to meet him way after the case was over with, he really believed that he would have been killed that night if he if he was staying with his mother. So as LAPD was working on the case, it's like a lot of police departments. They, they, let me ask. A, let me ask a question. Sure. So how long did the relationship between Riccardi and Connie Navarro last? It sounded like it was more than a year, a couple of years. No, I don't. It was not that long. I don't. It, no, it, it wasn't in in, uh, in years. Uh, it was not in years. Uh, I think it was maybe months or maybe a little uh, more so close to a year than than that. But it wasn't like a really long, long term relationship that happened uh with with uh with them. So it wasn't uh it you know, it wasn't like they had a lot of time invested with one another. I think she enjoyed she was so outgoing what I understand from talking to people and, and people from the PD that did the investigation, a few other things. So she's a pretty outgoing girl, really nice lady. You know, she just happened to, to uh you know come across this this guy. I know she she was into exercising and 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 the interesting thing about about this case and and it wasn't interesting to me because it upset me more <laughs> personally. Down in West LA was a gym that all the agents used to go to <laughs> back in the 80s, and we, I find out as I'm doing, working on this case that this guy used to go to the same gym. And when he used to come to town, and I know I'm kind of jumping around, but he used to come to town. He used to bait the police that he's in town. He used to tell people he's in town. They'll never figure out who I am. So I think it really upset the PD. It upset me once I got involved in the case. So there's a lot of things that happen. And, and, and getting back to David is he was a witness, and this thing affected him quite a bit. And, uh, you know, we'll talk about that later. But as the crime scene phase progressed, and when you look at the crime scene photographs, it's interesting to look at uh, crime scene photographs and talk about an offender, whether he's organized or disorganized. Now, John Riccardi was uh, a burglar. When I got his arrest record, I looked at some of his charges, and it was mostly stuff like burglary, possessing a stolen property, not, not a lot of things. So when you walk in and you look at the crime scene photographs, there wasn't anything touched in a house. So, you know, you always say to yourself, was it a burglary murder? Or was it a murder first? And in this case, there wasn't, I mean, her, the house was pristine, the pictures. I mean, nothing was uh, upset in the house. Nothing was torn apart, destroyed, you know, like somebody was stealing your TV or this. Everything was in place. And when you look at uh, the part of the crime scene, I mean, you could see where he popped open a, a door. They, there was a door, and there was a screen door, uh, a sliding door leading out. On the balcony, so he made entrance pretty easy to get into the place. You could see the tool marks and, and those types of things. So, like I said, he everything was in place. And as you proceeded, uh, as we looked at the crime scenes, as, as the police looked at the crime scenes, both gals were were shot upstairs on the second floor of the, of the uh, apartment. So this case kind of ran stagnant for a month or two. Then I got a call from the PD uh, afterwards uh, as we were going back and forth. And they said, listen, we think this guy definitely is out of L.A. So I said, okay. Um, and so the Bureau, we got together. I got together about on May 2nd of 1983, and we filed a federal warrant. And that warrant was called an unlawful flight to avoid prosecution warrant. And it's a, it's a, you know, it's a warrant that we always use to track people anywhere in the United States. 99.9% of times the warrants were dismissed after the fugitive was caught. We could have prosecuted federally for the, the unlawful flight, but very seldom they ever did that. 
And so we, I got involved in this investigation. It started out, you know, like all our fugitive investigations, you know, where do you start? I mean, you kind of have a, a nexus of where you start, right? You start with your family. You start with the relatives. You start with the friends. Um, you start with the associates. So, so the family is interesting because John Riccardi was divorced. His wife lived in New Jersey, ex-wife lived in New Jersey. He had a daughter, Lori, pretty sure I'm remembering these names pretty well. Lori, he had a father that was married to his step, a stepmother. His friends were guys, you know, very few from New York that, that were like, you know, they weren't, uh, you know, upstanding citizens types that you're going to get a lot from. So we had a very, our, our that line of uh, investigation was kind of interesting. So we got a chance to talk to his wife first and she, you know, she really didn't have anything to do with him. But the person we didn't mess around with was his daughter, Lori. At the time, I think she was around 15 or 16. She was young. So I chose uh, not to talk to her or deal with her. You know, sometimes in fugitive cases, and, and as this case goes on, you'll, you'll probably understand why. In fugitive cases, I always kind of leave a little opening for some, some that rat to crawl back into, that hole for him to crawl back into. And, you know, I know everybody goes back and forth. Now we're going to hit the family. We're going to put them on notice. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. Well, you know, as time goes on, sometimes, again, you leave that one opening for them to go to, and that's where you end up catching them. But in this case, things were kind of interesting. Uh, like I said, the ex-wife shared very little with us because she hasn't seen him. We didn't talk to the daughter. The step, The father was a cool customer. His name was Pat Riccardi. Pat moved to out in Sandusky, Ohio, and Pat's wife, or John's stepmother, uh, her name was Rosemary, she was some kind of, I think she was a writer or something, so she had her own thing going on. Well, Pat would go into New York, and he would just, you know, he'd evaporate in the air. I mean, we, we, we had no idea where he was going. We put surveillances on him a couple times, and we just he just lost us. So we assumed he was meeting uh, John in New York. The stepmother became kind of interesting because when all else fails, you you got to start playing hardball with different people. So I put a mail cover on the stepmother, and uh, every time the mail came in, you know, it's not. And we explain this to people: we're not reading your mail. A mail cover just is telling us who's writing to you or where you're getting mail from. So in this case, Rosemary was getting mail from everywhere. And like I said, she was into books or publicity, those types of things. So I start sending leads out to all these people saying, like, you know who Rosemary Riccardi is? You know her son's wanted for murder? And so after she got inundated with phone calls, she got pretty upset with the bureau. She called our one of her agents in Sandusky, I always call him, and our guy in Sandusky, he just took the ball, you know, and ran with it. So we we start talking to Rosemary. We asked her, look, you got to let us know when the uh, when Pat's going to go back and forth. We need to know. And so she started playing a little ball with us as much as she possibly could. And she mentioned that when uh, when he would take enough drugs and pills for his condition, that he would talk off the cuff and mention uh, Jack or John Riccardi, Jack, Jackie Riccardi, whatever. And so we had a good idea that he was still out there. You know, we did the toll phones, telephone records that came up with nothing that helped us at the time. We reviewed all his arrest reports. And then we, we put the old days. Remember the post office, the the 
IOs, we used to call them the identification order. So we made one up at John Riccardi, and it had all his ten fingerprints in them, and, you know, you saw them in the... Um, oh, the one-up posters. In the one-up posters, correct. Uh, and I remind, I'd like to remind everybody, we're talking in the 80s. We had no social media. And I always tell people, one thing, I, you know, it's like looking at your life. I'm glad I grew up in the Bureau in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s because they taught us how to investigate. You know, we didn't Google or we didn't, you know, we didn't look at Facebook or we didn't tweet or we didn't get those kind of calls. You had to go out and talk to people and you had to do certain, I mean, you had to do a lot of things you Maybe you're not the one today. I don't know that, but this really helped us. And the, the, so we took the IO folder of the picture and his fingerprints and we put them in. Be, again, our APHIS system was not in uh, our automated finger, um, our automated fingerprint integrated system was not in place in the early eighties, uh, like it would be today where we could put a stop there. So we had to send those fingerprint cards to all 50 states and we had to ask them to place a stop in the in the fingerprint repositories. I mean, these are just these are just techniques we did back in the days, and I know people still probably do them today. But they're used also uh, during movement in Interpol uh, to, for help us flashing with red notices. And it's just a good it's a good thing to have. It's a good backup to have. So as time went on in this case, you're talking 1983. I mean, we were doing a lot of a lot of stuff that just didn't come back. It didn't come back at all, anything positive. We weren't generating any good leads in this case. So the murder took place in L.A. You knew that he was originally from New York. Did you have any indication where else he might be? Great. Okay, so that's I'm I'm glad, boy. You're thinking along right with me because I was getting ready to say. So we we start looking at his past history and the connections I saw with John Riccardi were were like four states, and that was Florida, the Miami area, Jersey, New York, and then obviously California. So I was looking at those four states. He only showed arrest records in New York. So we kind of try to focus in those states, but you know sometimes you can't. You can't make up a lot of leads out there. You know, you could only, you know, the old times, uh, when things were getting tough, you'd send out those leads, contact local logical informants. And that was like, hey, I need some help. Just go talk to somebody in the neighborhood and show a picture of him or go to a rescue mission. And I know Riccardi, he wasn't having any of that stuff, rescue missions and that kind of stuff. And that's another thing about fugitives. What I found, and this guy was so interesting to me because I worked on a lot of fugitive work, and, and this guy, of all that I had, as as we used to call it in the old days, Office of Origin Cases, I'd learned so much from tracking a guy like him because you had to see what he was about. Fugitives on the run, if you have money, you could stay out there. But most of the fugitives I tracked down, I mean, they didn't have those kind of resources, I mean, we were looking. We heard we heard that he was tied up with a mob back east in New York, and our guys, I think, in New York, kind of put that to rest. All the OC guys and working with the fugitive guys back there, they 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 hit his name around, and nobody really knew this guy as any made member of that kind of stuff. So that kind of maybe put that aside a little bit. And then looking at what he did in the crime scene, like I said, he didn't mess anything up, although he goes in and shoots the gals and leaves his fingerprints, but he's fairly organized. Uh, he was an organized 
vendors, I refer to them as. So these people, to me, are going to be a little harder to catch. They're going to make probably less mistakes than the guy that, you know, maybe shoots somebody on the corner, drives across state lines and goes visit his cousin, and, you know, we find him there. He goes and checks into the motel, and we find him there. So this guy, he left no print of of anything about him. Social Security, banks, I mean, nothing. We couldn't, there was nothing that came up with this guy. So, and I was kind of getting frustrated. And I, and every time he, he would come into LA and he hooked up with one of the girls. And, uh, and I, I, I know her name. I remember her name. I'd rather not throw it out there, but she would call us like a day after he left town. She was scared to call us. So she called the PD and then the PD would call us. And then I go over and talk to her. And I remember going over one day. She lived in West L.A. She's the one I think was with him the night he was calling her and she wasn't around. He made this gal call the house before he went over there and she wasn't there. But this girl was frightened of him. So we'd say, well, look, what, what, uh, what's the story with him? You know, she says, well, you're not going to recognize him. He looks like Willie Nelson. So then I'd say, oh, boy. So then I contact the Bureau, a press, special project section. I said, can you... Give me a picture of John McCarty that looks like Willie Nelson with his hair and stuff like that, which is I should have known better. But that's another thing. You start collecting, and this is going to come up in a bit as I'm talking about the case, you start collecting photographs of him because you're going to need him. Like in this case, I needed every photograph. I had booking photographs. I had regular photographs of him. Uh, so I have a, a ton of different photographs that I was keeping in case I needed them. So things hit the hit the, the skids, and finally the the only social media resource we really had back in the eighties, late eighties, nineties was America's Most Wanted. Yeah, I let's kinda... talk about that because even though we can assume that everybody knows what America's Most Wanted uh, is, I do have some younger people listening, and so America Most Wanted was a weekly show that came on that flashed different people that were wanted throughout the country and you know people would watch the show just to see if there was anybody they recognized and many many times somebody would call in to the tv show or after and say yeah that guy is my neighbor or that guy works down the street so it was a very successful show i don't know why america's most wanted Mm. isn't still on today well, it was a very successful show. And you know, it started back in the late 80s, maybe like 88, 89, somewhere around there. I mean, I had a couple, I had a couple cases on there prior to Riccardi. So I had a kind of a working relationship. I had a, a very good working relationship with one of the producers of a lot of the shows. And I was very, and I say the word blessed because I, not only did I must have had when I was in LA, uh, at least a half a dozen cases with her, Donna Brandt, her name was. And then when I when I moved on to Connecticut and started a task force, featured task force, all crime task force. I even had more cases on. She got more cases on. She was, was phenomenal. She understood. She understood cases. She understood how to put them on. She understood how to investigate them. So uh, I had a hard time initially pitching Riccardi at first, and I call it pitching the show. And then when it when it got legs, I mean it got legs. I mean they were. Like I said, they were so glad they aired this. And as far as taking off, I know John Walsh. I know John Walsh personally. I, like I said, I spent a lot of cases on America's Most Wanted. After I retired from the FBI, John asked me to go do a case down in um, Phoenix, Arizona. I think the guy, his name is Fisher. I think he's still in the FBI's top ten. He killed his two children and his wife. They believe he's still in the top ten. He asked me to go down there and talk about him. You know, I did some work for America's Most Wanted. 
John had his own TV show after that, after America's Most Wanted, and I got a chance to, to uh, be on the show uh, right after the D.C. sniper case. He was meeting down in Rockville, Maryland, with uh, at like a town hall meeting, and he had different people, and they asked me to come and talk, be part of the group. So, and then when I met John, obviously when we did the uh, Morning Sun taping with uh, with David Navarro. So I've had a, a good working relationship with John Walsh. I think he was fantastic. The show was fantastic. I think it did so much for law enforcement across the board. So having said that, I've got America's Most Wanted involved in this case. And that's kind of where the case kind of kind of started. You know, the, the first airing of this case, you get these leads. And that's another thing I always warn people. When you put a case on national TV, you've got to know your case. Because think about it. you got a case on America's Most Wanted. You get phone calls from all over the United States, right? And when you're fielding these phone calls, your, your people are coming to you and they're saying, I just got a call from Cleveland. He's in Cleveland. I got, just got a call from Milwaukee. He's in Milwaukee. I got a call from El Paso. He can't be everywhere. So we used to hate picking up those phones in America's Most Wanted and calling the FBI or local police and saying, can you run out and check this out right now? I mean, you, you really had to have a feel for your cases. And you got to know your case. And in, in this case, like I said, it was so long, those six years or so, before we put it on. So we put it on the, the first airing, and a lot of things didn't shake out right away. I mean, we had some information, uh, like the, a New York and New Jersey connection. So, um, you know, we, we looked at, I looked at, looked at different things. John McCarty's women in his life, he had a stepmother, he had an ex-wife, he had a daughter, he had a female friend in L.A. that he was contacting. He had a girlfriend that came came to us through America's Most Wanted. I'll explain that to you in a bit. Then he had his daughter's girlfriends, and then he had his girlfriend's girlfriend. Now, followed me through all those. So he had a lot of women, different women in his life. And you always say, you know what, it's kind of interesting. And one of the guys that worked for me, before I retired, went on in his bureau career. He ended up in Boston, and he was running the Whitey Bulger case. And I used to say to him, "Hey, Rich, well, look look at the women. We don't don't look for the guy. Look for the woman." So we, we well, you have of, to, yeah, you have to explain that. You have to explain well, that. Well, you know, in, in this case, and you'll find out as we go along how we help catch this guy. Is that these women have a lot to do. With, you're, you know, you're attached to these two women, and you're going to touch base with them. I mean, everybody comes home, and everybody contacts their mother. You got a daughter. Uh, you got a girlfriend, a girlfriend. Your your daughter's got girlfriends, and so and, and so that to me, and and it's, it seems to be a logical place, not only to start, but maybe to stay on it and not go forward. Like I said to you earlier, there are times that we've caught people with a female, the the, the bad guy, and we left that female alone because we figured that person was going to come back to him. So. In this case, as, as I go through it, already his stepmother gave us some information. His ex-wife gave us very little. We didn't speak to his daughter, but coming up, you'll you'll get an idea what happened there. The female friend in L.A. she didn't give us much after he left. And then, as time goes on, we'll talk. To, I'll tell you a little bit about these other women in, in Riccardi's life. But I was convinced after the first showing, knowing what I know about Riccardi that he was 
such an egotistical SOB. That's probably the best thing I can call him. And he was into himself like nobody's business. So back in our day in the Bureau, we have our special projects section. And every once in a while I see on TV people try to explain that in the old days about what is, what is a special project section. Well, let me explain to you. The special project section, in this case, I took all his photographs and that I had from different various shots. And I asked them to put a flyer together. And I, and, and they, and I said to them in the flyer, would you please send this flyer to every plastic surgeon in New York, Northern Jersey, Connecticut, Florida, and I, and I picked Massachusetts too. I don't know why I did that, but I threw Massachusetts into it. So this flyer on February 20th, 1990 was made and it was sent out. So we didn't really get a lot from the very first John McCarty thing, but it was sent out. Why? Why plastic surgeon? I just had that feeling. I just had that gut feeling about him. Because he was uh, so vain? You knew he was yeah, so uh, yeah. into that? So, so vain. So, you know, muscle, you know, he was we're into body work and bodybuilding and all that kind of stuff. So this like the vanity maybe overtook him. So we sent this flyer out. And um, I, I was back in America's Most Wanted at the time and get this call. And then I was working. And like I said, let me tell you, and I use the word I. Boy, I, I, I hate to use that pronoun because I had so many good FBI agents throughout the states work on this case with me. I mean, it was just incredible. I, I had guys, a good friend of mine in New York, uh, we knew one of from day one in the Bureau, Tommy Brown and Eddie Peterson in uh, New York, in Newark office. Phenomenal, phenomenal agent. He's the kind of guy, like if you were to put an all-star team together in the FBI, he's the guy who'd be a number four hitter. I had called him Sandusky George. Uh, he was in Sandusky. And then I had finally, and we'll talk about Texas, I had the agents down in Texas who ended up affecting the rest. But as we go through, we get, we sent this flyer out, and do you not know that I get a call? We get a call from a plastic surgeon, and he asked us to come over to see him. So I happened to be back in in, uh, in D.C. Uh, work, uh, on this case from America's Most Wanted. So I stayed up there. I went up to uh, Jersey, met, uh, met Eddie Peterson, and we just uh, sat down with the plastic surgeon, and he just started rattling things off next thing you know. He opened up a file and gave us all of the guy's pictures. Wow. Every 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 photograph he took before and after his uh, plastic surgery. Was this plastic surgery performed to make him look younger, or was it done to disguise him? Well, I think a combination. First, I think more so on the young side, because I, as I look at the pictures, I mean, he did a couple, took, you know, replaced some moles. He did some uh, tuck work. He tucked his chin, tucked his face in. He had a gap between his teeth. He covered up. So I think maybe a little bit of both, a little bit of both. But this guy, uh, we knew it was our boy. He, we knew it right away as soon as we sat down with him. So we had our first big break, really, in the in the case. Was he using another name? Not at the time he was using like a uh the variation of his name. And the doctor spoke to us, he said, I think what it was is his aunt went to that plastic surgeon. That's how he got to this plastic surgeon. But he's using a variation of his name. But and I'll again I'll proceed because 
later on, that wasn't the name that we we called him under. So we kind of uh, we we you know we sat on this information, uh, and then we we put out America's Most Wanted. We, we we talked a little bit about. We didn't talk about plastic surgery that much, but on the second airing, we got a couple of phone calls. Well, let me back you up one step. John McCarty's daughter Lori and her husband were involved in a plane crash. They crashed and were killed, and I think out, out of, over in Patterson, New Jersey. And that was his life. This little girl. We find out obviously later, but but the mother, the, the ex-wife, told us that we never got a chance to talk to her. You know, she she was killed. But the interesting part was we put some information up about him again, and we talked about I think the plane crash. And we got two phone calls that day. The first phone call we got was from a gal who would not identify herself. And she says, I'm best friends with Lori and her father used to come visit at a restaurant we worked at. And uh, she won't, she won't be talked to anymore. But she says the father told her that uh, they were arguing and that she sprayed him in the face with uh, starch, which is kind of interesting. And we thought, if I think what I said earlier, they found her in a lint, that closet with it with the towels and the spray starch and all that kind of good stuff. So that kind of made sense. It kind of helped, you know, with the crime scene. But the second girl that called us, she gave us her name, told us where she worked. Explained. You know what? I, I have to ask you. I'm not, I'm confused about that, about the starch. So the, the daughter sprayed him, Lauren? Uh, no, no, no. I'm sorry. No. Back when we talked about the crime scene, we said, remember I said we found, they found Connie's body the door was open to the closet where there were towels, where there was space darts, where there was an iron like her. Uh, and and so that's where they found her body, right there. And they found some fingerprints there. Well, a couple years, several years later, this young girl that called in was telling us that John Riccardi's daughter, Lori, told her, her girlfriend, that my dad said this girl sprayed him in the face with starch. And that's what happened to her and this kind of stuff. So what, what the father's doing is telling the daughter, oh, you know, this wasn't, this isn't how it happened and this is what took place and this kind of stuff. So he's having the daughter believe that he didn't just go in and shoot and kill these girls. Okay. So that kind of confirmed a little bit about the crime scene photographs we were seeing, that the, the, the police were seeing. Um, but the, but the second girl, she, spoke to us and she wanted to be interviewed she said, I'll be glad to be interviewed so I uh, again when I tell this case the story we get in to go interview her and walk in the door and I'm with Eddie by the way Eddie Peterson at the time and we walk in the door and the uh, the gal comes in and I said oh boy she I tell people she reminds me of Cindy Lauper and I said oh this is going to be a lousy interview you know she's like oh you know what I mean so uh, so she's like bubbly and all this kind of stuff but she was in the design. So she sat down with us, and she told us that John Riccardi came to see Lori with a girl and described the girl. So we talked to her a lot, and then we brought in a New New, uh, New Jersey State Police composite sketch artist. And he came in and did two outstanding composites. And like I said, this is 1990, so... You think about this. The murder was in 1983. This girl probably saw him once or twice at this restaurant. We did these composites of both him, John McCarty, and this mysterious blonde girl. And so then what we did was 
we took the composite, we took all the, every picture we had, every picture we had from the, uh, plastic surgeon and all, and we put it all together and we generated, uh, new pictures of what John Riccardi looks like, we thought, in 1990. Now we didn't have any basis for the girl, because we didn't have her, any of her real photographs, we just had a composite of her. So then we got up on America's Most Wanted and we showed, we showed these pictures again. And what happened was, on the third time, this guy called in, didn't want to give us his name, told us that his mom knows these people, and that his mom works at a bank, and kind of told us this town she worked in, but she, he wouldn't tell us the bank or anything. At the time, I was back, went back to L.A., Eddie Peterson was still working on the case. He, he knocked on every bank door and found the lady. <laughs> so we get back out there, he interviews her, we get, a, get her all together. Did the son give you a city? Gave us a town, and that was about it. A town in and New said, Jersey. Said, and said that she works, worked in a bank there. So he kind of steered us in the right direction, wouldn't give us his mother's name, kind of. He kept playing around with it. He may have gave it. I think he may have given a first name. He was really protective of his mother because he was worried about his mother. He was scared that something was going to happen to his mother. But he gave us enough information that we were able to track this lady down. And so what the lady did was she went into telling us about, he used an uh, alias name of Fiala. That's the last name of Riccardi was using. Told us about this guy and told us he drove a Cadillac, which Riccardi liked to drive Cadillacs. Told us about the girl, gave us some information uh, about where she could be located in a couple areas. So what we did was we did a very long and lengthy investigation in that area. And after we were able to connect the dots, we were able to come up with a driver's license photograph of John Riccardi with the last name Fiala, I think he used that name. And uh, we were able to identify, uh, and, and she told us her name was Inger. Inger was the mysterious blonde woman that had... Exactly. Okay. One of John Riccardi's girlfriends. Um, to be able to identify where she lived. We noticed that Riccardi, within the last, throughout this process, like while we're doing this investigation, he surrendered his driver's license to Texas. And he looked like he moved down to Texas. So what we did was, back to the old theories again, we flipped it around. I told the guys, I, I don't want her interviewed, uh, Inger interviewed, because I was, you know, one shot. We didn't think he was there because we did some surveillance work. What happened was is that we didn't do anything with her. I mean, like talk to her. But then we we did we did the electronic stuff with her. Now you remember working fugitive cases, unlawful flight to avoid prosecution cases. There's a lot of there's a lot of things you can't use the court for. Uh, Title three, you, you can't use a Title three in a fugitive case. You can't listen to conversations that those aren't that that's not for a fugitive case. So the only thing you can really use for a fugitive case is uh, uh, trap and trace. Reverse, reverse billings, those types of things. I mean, so that's about all you can do. Incoming calls, outcoming calls. We could put a pen register up, those kind of things. So we did all the things we could do, which including surveillance, I take it. Yes, yeah, including your surveillance. So we did all we can do to uh, hook the two up together, and I think we did it successfully without even talking to her. We sat and waited. This started back in like in November, so Christmas was coming on, and I get a call. Call down to Houston. And one thing about the bureau, I, you know, if you, you you remember, if it's your case, 
it's kind of good. I mean, I always tell the guys in the other field of business, when you set out a lead, like, hey, listen, you're there. I'm not. So I can't tell you what to do. But in this particular case, I asked the case agent, Andy Kelly, his name was, I said, can you, can you not hit this place? Can you just, no, I'm just concerned. They had a, a high, it's like a, maybe a 20 story condo building they came up with, you know, so you know how hard that is to surveil and those kind of things. So I asked him to wait and, uh, not to do anything and, and he did and he did as much as he could possibly do without, you know, shaking things up. So we were able to figure out what unit he was in, all that kind of good stuff. We didn't see a car and that, that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, we let things go. And then on January 4th, I remember January 4th, 1991 pretty well because for two reasons, I got my uh, transfer letter back east to, to New Haven on that day. <laughs> and on that day, the FBI swooped in in Houston and he pulls in in his Cadillac, another Cadillac, and they uh, they take him down without any incident. What was it with this blonde woman girlfriend that led you to know that John Riccardi was living in Houston? Well, we had his surrendered New Jersey driver's license that he surrendered to Texas. So we did all the Texas work, you know, all the, all the stuff you could do via computer stuff down there. And then we had her placing calls into his place down there. So we had we had a pretty good feeling that uh, that's exactly where he was. And then as as it progressed, we were able to verify the address. We were able to verify that he lived, I forget what floor he was on, that he lived in one of the condos up there. And again, we never talked to her. We did not go and talk to her until the day he was arrested. Then I sent the agency out to talk to her. And you know what's funny? Talking about this case as I go through it, it doesn't do any justice because there's no visuals. You know what I mean? It's like if you could see the visuals, you're like, you'd be shaking your head saying, man, look at that. And and speaking of visuals, when we got his driver's license from Texas, okay, if I put together a photograph that was generated from the Bureau with, you know, a combination of all his pictures, including the composite, and she even put a pair of glasses on him and a mustache. We did everything. If I showed you the picture of his driver's license and what he looked like when we, he was arrested, you would like shake your head. It was on the money. I mean, dead on the money. When we went back, the guys went back to hit Inger up. I mean, she started rolling and she brought us to a, uh, and the story doesn't end now. She brought us to a uh, bank where this guy had, I don't know, $750,000 worth of monies and jewelry in that bank. Okay, I mean, now where did he get that from? Um, Is that from burglary? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of interesting. Remember, I go way back, I said, you know, when people are on the run, you got to have money, and you're thinking about yourself. And then, remember, another step back, and you think back at somebody's criminal arrest record, and you say, burglary, burglary, burglary. Well, this guy wasn't a, this guy just wasn't a burglar that just kind of showed up in the neighborhood and went in and took your color TV and stuff like that. What he did was he was sophisticated enough. He went in and burglarized high-end condos, apartments. People had things for sale in big cities. Him and his partner, and I'll tell you a little bit about the partner in a minute, him and his old partner from New Jersey would go in there and they get in there and boom. After they take a look at the place, they come back and stick it up and steal the stuff. I cannot tell you. That's just in Jersey. Now, we got we flew down to Houston that day of the arrest, my, myself and the lead detective. We got into the condo because there's so much, so many things in there. I mean, like properties. He kept, like, 
crazy things. And next to his bed, there would be like, I don't know, 20 pairs of glasses. I mean, crazy things. And his wallet, I remember he had like an article about the shooting, about her. He kept that article in his wallet. We just found so much there. I think the agents in Houston recovered over a couple million dollars worth of stuff. Got a chance to go meet Riccardi in jail after they arrested myself and the detective, and he wasn't really happy with me or the uh, the detective. Me personally said that I was responsible for killing his father, who happened to die of natural causes during the investigation, and his daughter died. And you know, we had nothing. Obviously, you know, he's just reaching out. So uh, let me and, ask you a question about his daughter. Did right. he attend the funeral, and did you have agents? At the funeral, just in case he did? Well, you know, we didn't know about the daughter being killed after the fact, but what we did was, and a good point, we went to the cemetery where she was buried, and we asked the, um, we, you know, we got together with the people there, asked them uh, about, are there any cameras, you know, you know how it is in the cemetery, you could be way out there. And so had to have cameras coming and going. Bottom line is we didn't have any feedback on that. We didn't have anybody that could recognize him or uh, all that all that type of stuff. I'm, I'm convinced that if he didn't come to the, the funeral back then, he probably visited her gravesite. But, again, we did not know about the plane crash and, and those kind of things to after the fact. It, again, she I think she was married, so the, no one picked up on Lori Riccardi. And the stepmother never called us to tell us that. We just we heard about it as we were putting things on America's Most Wanted became the fruition. Getting back with Riccardi here, the, the Bureau went after him. We went after him down in Texas. The guys in Texas went after him. And they, they prosecuted him. They indicted him on interstate transportation of stolen property. And this is where our, if we had social media back then and, and Facebook and you know, you know, whatever all the stuff is, we probably would have solved a lot of these burglaries. I don't know how many we end up getting police reports on. Not many, maybe five, six, seven, eight. And that, I don't know that, that many. We indicted them. They indicted them down there. And in the in the uh, in the interim, we tracked down the, the bureau tracks down this guy, his partner Samuel Joseph Sabatino. So they arrest Sabatino, and you know how that goes. You know, you got two guys being arrested for this kind of stuff. Think about what Sabatino want to do. He wants to maybe play ball with the bureau a little bit about Riccardi and things of that nature. And what he did and what he didn't do. So uh, I think they went back and forth snitching on one another. I think Sabatino got the best deal of all. Riccardi got hit with federal time. They kept him in federal prison. And then they um, transferred him to Los Angeles where he stood trial for a local, uh, the two homicides in L.A. And um, what he did was he um, was found guilty. He was given the, the death sentence. And that's where that stood for then. And as our system goes, in a couple of two, three years, four years, uh, back in 2012, somewhere around there, they took it off the, uh, they, they just reversed it and gave him life prison sentences. Back to his burglar ring, he was really good. I mean, he, when he hit these condos and apartments, they said, they were telling us that both of these guys, Riccardi and Sabatino, were probably some of the most talented lockpick burglars they'd seen. And again, we had we I think we have confirmations in like in New York, Miami, Chicago, Los Angeles, San Francisco, the some of the places that he hit with his burglaries. And he went overseas, that's another reason. Um we we did identify his I think Continental Airline that he had frequent flyers. So he spent a lot of time in Italy in those kind of places. So we again we weren't sure where he is and let me tell you, God knows what he did in other countries. I mean he could have been 
responsible for a lot of things in, in other countries. He got sentenced on August 4th of 1994 to death, to death row in San Quentin. But in July of 2012, death penalty was overturned and he was sentenced to life in prison. And that's kind of like where the case goes. America's Most Wanted kept that case on their website forever uh, until uh, America's Most Wanted closed shop. David, like I said, David did his own story, like you mentioned earlier, uh, Morning Sun, it was called, a story about his life and how his mother's death affected him and the world of drugs and all that type of things. Kind of a sad story, as you can imagine. It was an interesting case, as fugitive cases go. He was a competitor to catch, to say the least. And uh, I spent over eight years or so. You know how it is in the Bureau. Once you get assigned your cases, <laughs> they don't go away unless you go away or you get transferred or you get reassigned to another squad. They're yours to, uh, to death to your part, as they say. This was a really good case, I thought. Now, you said that you had a chance to meet Dave Navarro. Right. So was there something special that he said to you, well, knowing that he, you worked on this fugitive case? Yes. What he wanted to do is he we met down at the uh, – the America's Most Wanted moved down to the um, one of the museums, the Crime and Punishment, one of those museums down in D.C. And we met, myself and John Walsh met him one day. This is before the Morning Sun came out. He was doing this documentary. So what he did was he interviewed me for some time. He wanted to ask questions about what you and I are talking about. You know, what did you do? And then he wanted to talk to John Walsh about his effort to catch this guy, to, to get Riccardi on TV and help catch him. So he spoke to us for a while. It was, it was, he was you know, taking notes, and I think it was, it was under camera, obviously, because I think the, the show gave us you know, a couple. You know how it is. They talk to you for, for an hour or so and put a minute's worth of your stuff on there. So that's the way it goes. But he did, and it was interesting. You know, it was, you know we talked. I, he really appreciated the work. I understood how he felt, and, you know, a thanks was was. It's all you expect. Thank you very much. And, you know, people, all people appreciate the work you've done, you know. You know, it's been in, been in the Bureau, right? We hear it publicly sometimes, and sometimes we don't hear it, but it's, as they used to say, it's understood. You got a transfer to New Haven. Was that an office of preference transfer? That it was. <laughs> you know what? Uh, it was interesting. I uh, got get married, and uh, we decided to move back east time and my wife came back to work at the bureau so we moved back to connecticut and i was very blessed because at the time that was in the early 90s and the safe streets task forces were a hot item and i got a chance to get one started and before i retired i became a supervisor for my last five years in the bureau i was able to supervise a violent crime fugitive task forces which we had you know we again we had a lot of cases on america's most wanted got involved with some notable cases. One in particular made a lot of press, a lot of TV, a lot of shows. A guy named Alex Kelly, young Darian kid, high school kid who raped a couple of girls, took off, went overseas, and nobody could find him for 10 years. And we took over the case and tracked him down with unconventional methods. We may have to come back to you and talk about that case. I mean, that case was an, it was a good case. Uh, it was a long case. Uh, here's a kid with money and the parents were helping the kid out. And, uh, so it was, it was tough. Another, let me tell you on that case, believe it or not, when we got involved in the case in our task force, it didn't take us long to figure out what we were going to do to get this guy. It happened quickly once we decided how we we're going to approach it and what we were going to do. And, uh, 
and when we found him. I think, and like I said, it made a lot of different TV shows. There was a book written about Alex Kelly. He's out of prison already. I mean, he's he's been one in prison. I think he spent about 16 years, so he's he's back out now. But it was an interesting case, like so many other cases. Like I said, I feel feel blessed that I was able to do this kind of work. It's like when we joined the FBI back in the 70s. You know, Efren Zimlos Jr. and the FBI, that's what it was all about, I think. But uh, it sure changed a lot after, before you retired, life had changed in the Bureau, I think. The Bureau has done such tremendous work, and I think these, these programs and your show and these stories just highlight the work the men and women do in the FBI. I think it's fantastic. So when did you retire? I retired, oh, 2001, in August of 2001. Well, so what have you been doing with yourself since then? Well, stayed in Connecticut. I was, work- I did, you know, like most guys that want to do a little PI work. I didn't want to work full time. I had an opportunity to work for a gentleman up in Connecticut. We were doing site surveys, uh, security assessments in schools up in Connecticut. And then I decided to take another move. I moved down to uh, the shoreline in Delaware and opened up a business with a partner of mine, doing some work for school districts and DOE. But in the interim, I got involved with a national center for missing and exploited children. So uh, I've been doing work for them as a consultant for probably over 10 years now. It's good work. I mean, you're, you're a civilian, but you're doing work and uh, it's rewarding work. It's a whole different style of work since you're not in the thick of things, you're just on a peripheral vision of things, but it's well worth it. It's uh, it's well worth it. I'm doing some work as we speak down in Florida on a, on some cold cases. Are many of those parental kidnapping cases? Or you know actual- what? No, the ones I'm looking at now are are not parental. Although it's interesting why where I'm down here, they just had one where a stepfather and mother went in and took a daughter out of a school and took her off her father had custody her, but they, they're not parental these are just cases where you know little boys been missing they're sad stories you know they don't know if he went missing or he got abducted or you know what happened to him and then um another one i'm looking at now is uh is a young girl 14 year old girl that snuck out of her house one night to go to a party and never made it back so um you know there's so many of those cases throughout the united states that you see and any successes it's interesting because philosophies have changed. One is older. One's like back in 1998, and the other one was in 2009. The philosophies have changed now. You know, in the old days in the Bureau, remember, the and I worked on the kidnapping squad, is like presumptive calls, 24 hours. And then things start changing. Like if a child's involved, he can go out right away. And, you know, even if it's not taken over state lines, we can still help out. And the resources that were thrown at the latter case since it was 2009, all kinds of resources. The one in 98 Less resources because of the nature of of the type of case and things like that. But uh, you know, the, some of these are tough. I think I think people know what's going on. It's just you know, like you said earlier, we're talking to people. It's getting people to talk to you. Some people, when they're young, may not want to talk to you. Maybe ten years, twenty years later, and change a lifestyle. Maybe they found religion or maybe all these different things could occur. Maybe they'll talk to you a little bit more about things. So that's all you could. Hope and pray on these uh, these old cases, cold cases. We talked about how the Morning Sun case was an emotional one, but with you now working on finding missing and exploited children, I would imagine that's a difficult job for you to do every day, especially when we see these cases of young girls who have been gone for years, and we discover that they are alive and have been held against their will for many years. I guess when you're working cold cases, that's what gives you hope and keeps you going. 
Yeah, I mean that. I mean that's the message, and I think I think like we, you, you know, the parents see that you know the, the effort's still being there. People are still working the case. It may get handed down, it may get reviewed, but people keep it alive. Uh, you know, you you send flyers out, you update things. You just don't know on some of these cases. You know, stranger things have happened in these cases. And like you said, the emotional roller coaster you have, and and I agree with you. It's like when we were working, like I said, you, you didn't you, you learn how to separate that. And now that you're older, I mean, you're older. We got grandkids and stuff like that. And now you take a look at things, and you're a little bit more sensitive to that. Like when I see these cases now, there's a sensitivity. I I would come home and show a little softer side talking about things than you would back in the day when you were on the job. And you you got to keep that in mind. These the parents, they just want answers. It's very difficult. I mean, law enforcement, it's a monumental task in these cases, unbelievable task. I like to give my guest the last word, and we've talked about so many really important things today. The last word is yours. What would you like to say? Well, first, I'd, I'd like to thank you for taking the time out to put this effort forward. The Bureau in these days has been taking a lot of, a lot of bad publicity, and you're, you're going back to our roots, and you're letting people know, hey, these are men and women that work cases every day, and uh, they do a great job of it. They stay focused. There's no politics. There's no nothing involved, and we just go out and do our job. And I think when you hear all these stories and you're, you're letting people talk, I think it's a, it's a great thing that you're doing. I think it really, uh, it really does bode well for people like myself and yourself, people that were in the Bureau for many years. So I appreciate your effort. And that's the end of the interview. Back at jerrywilliams.com, you'll find a photo of Ralph DeFonso. You'll find newspaper articles about this case and Dave Navarro's documentary, Morning Sun. I also have a link to the movie trailer, the one at flyer for John Riccardi, and the composite drawing I don't have a crime fiction recommendation for you today. As you know, over the last couple of months, I haven't been able to read as much as I wanted to because I've been working to finish my next crime novel, Greedy Givers. I am pleased to let you know that I have sent that baby off to my editor and I have a couple of weeks to read and watch a little bit of TV while I wait for her to return the manuscript As soon as I get it back, I'll make those last revisions and edits. Greedy Givers will be published in June. This episode was sponsored by FBIRetired.com, the only online directory made available to the general public featuring retired FBI agents and analysts interested in showcasing their skills to secure business opportunities. I want to thank you for listening, and I hope you come back again for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.